Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education, part of the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Haber. I've recently joined New Books Network as a podcaster in order to bring listeners into contact with authors working at the cutting edge of educational innovation. My own work as an educational consultant and researcher looks at the intersection of pedagogy and technology in K-12 higher ed and workforce education. I'm also an author of books on massive open online courses and critical thinking. You can check out some of my work at degreeoffreedom.org. When I talk with educators and educational technologists, I often run into situations where these two groups are talking past one another, which, if I could put my critical thinking logic pointy hat on, usually means there's a hidden premise that underlies disagreements or the inability to connect. Reflecting on one's premises and trying to grasp what we truly know versus think we know is the specialty of philosophers. And in today's podcast, I'd like to welcome the philosopher, public intellectual, and prolific author, Lee McIntyre, to New Books in Education. Welcome, Lee. Thanks for having me on. So, Lee, before we get into your most recent book, The Scientific Attitude from MIT Press, give a few listeners who may not have read your work before a bit of your background. Well, I've got a PhD in philosophy from the University of Michigan, and I've worked as a philosophy professor for a number of years. And then I decided that what I really wanted to do was write philosophy for the general public. So even though I still teach and I still do some academic writing, the majority of my writing these days, other than being academic articles, are books that anybody should be able to read if they have an interest uh, about current events that are looked at through the lens of a philosopher's precision. Now here, I should confess that Lee and I have known each other for quite a long time, so I may know the answer to this question, but is there a theme that threads through your work, including your writing for fellow philosophers, as well as writing for the general public? Yes, I'm a philosopher of science, and I'm particularly interested in the topics of truth and evidence and facts and what makes science special, what makes science such a terrific way of reasoning. And of late, I've been very interested in science denial and all of the people who want to claim that climate change isn't real or the earth is flat or that vaccines cause autism. I'm particularly interested in the failure of reasoning that that represents and what philosophers can say to try to combat it. It sounds like you're in a fight against skepticism, but aren't science and philosophy disciplines driven by skepticism and not accepting things at face value? Yeah, it's a good question. Science deniers like to think of themselves as skeptics, but they're not really skeptics. I mean, skepticism has a storied history and an important place in philosophy because the idea is that by doubting what you know, you can sharpen it and maybe figure out whether you need to raise your standards and you know the difference between beliefs that are well justified and those that are not. But skepticism doesn't just mean doubting. It doesn't mean never letting any belief through. 
It means having a criteria or a certain set of standards. And so part of skepticism is being able to specify uh, in advance, if you can, what would allow a belief to get through, say it had enough warrant, it had enough evidence. And science is a good example of this. So my beef against science deniers is that they're, they like to call themselves skeptics. But if so, I mean, they're, they're what I call cafeteria skeptics. They like to pick and choose. And the reason they allow themselves that liberty is because they really already know in advance what they want to be true and what they don't want to be true. So they're not really skeptics, they're deniers. And whatever their ideology is in particular, that's what frames their evidence that they'll accept and that they won't. You often find science deniers saying that science has to be perfect, that it has to prove a result, that we have to have certainty. That's a ridiculous standard in in science or really anywhere outside uh, deductive logic or mathematics. That's just not the correct standard for beliefs, and they don't even follow that standard themselves for most of their beliefs, just the things that they don't want to believe, like evolution or the global earth. With that as backdrop, why don't you describe your most recent work, The Scientific Attitude? So my book is called uh, The Scientific Attitude, and the subtitle is Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. So what I'm concerned with in that book is what's special about science, what really makes science such a good way of reasoning about the empirical world. And what I think uh, the answer is, is the scientific attitude, which is to say not a methodology, though science uses uh, good methodological thinking. It's the attitude that scientists have the idea that to be critical of one another's work, to test it, to care about evidence, and to be willing to change your mind on the basis of new evidence. That's what I think is distinctive about science. And that's precisely what I think is missing in pseudoscience and with science denial. And by the way, in fraud, it's people who have a bad attitude about learning from evidence, people who have an agenda, if you want to think of it that way, who are not willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads in hopes of learning more, but rather to cherry pick evidence or to be overly skeptical, as I just said, in the cases where you don't want to believe some certain type of evidence. Those are the people who really are not living up to the scientific ideal, which I think is the scientific attitude. And it sounds like scientific attitude is really a set of norms, right? A set of cultural norms among scientists as much or more than a particular methodology. Is that what your thesis is? It is. And, and this is something that philosophers of science have eschewed for a long time. They always want to make a fact-value distinction. And philosophers have talked for a long time about scientific method. These days, scientists really don't, philosophers of science, I should say, don't really believe in scientific method because they don't think that there's some particular recipe that you can follow that you put in facts at one end and you get truth at the other. So the idea here is supposed to be that in science, you go in with a certain amount of humility toward what you don't know, and you learn from experience, you learn from the evidence. And then you, you know, formulate your hypothesis and you, know, you, you go forward. But it's, it's not that there's no recipe. As I said, it's not you know, the five-step method that we all learned in school. Instead, it's this ethos. It's this set of community values where we're critical of one another's work and we understand what it means to, to test one another's work. And the scientific attitude is not measured simply in anybody's individual attitude. Uh, it's not measured by whether somebody thinks that they're living up to the standard. It's measured in their behavior. It's measured in 
whether they share their data, whether they subject their articles to peer review, whether they are open to the idea of having their studies replicated, uh, you know, to be tested to see if the results can be reproduced or not. That's really the scientific attitude. It's all the checks and balances that scientists use to test one another's work and allow others to use on their own to see if what they're saying really has any merit to it. And just so listeners can get a sense, you've talked about denial versus skepticism. You've also talked about fraud. Maybe give us some examples of how someone can make a distinction between science denial and maybe an overzealous skepticism or fraud and simple error. Yeah, I do a lot of this in the book. There are several different examples. One of the ones that I talk about in the book, and one of the most intriguing examples, I think, is cold fusion, which was this idea from uh, decades ago that you could do a, a fusion at room temperature. And if you could do that, that actually was would be quite a breakthrough because it would mean that you could have unlimited energy supply. You could basically have uh, energy from, from seawater. Well, the people who were working on this were genuine scientists. They were actual scientists. And But what happened is they forgot the scientific attitude. They really got ahead of themselves to the point where they were so excited by the result that they didn't write a paper and subject it to peer review. They instead announced their results at a press conference. They started to withhold their data rather than to share it and to really cut corners on some of the uh, some of the values that, uh, that make science science. I'm not willing to go so far as to say that what they did was fraud because I'm not sure that they had the bad intent to to mislead other people, but it is to say that they were all of a sudden not cooperating with the the creed that scientists have in common. I'll give you a, a better example of the scientific attitude. Years, and again, I discussed this one in the book. I can't remember names or, or dates, but there was an astronomer who was getting ready to give a presentation at a big meeting in which he had just made this uh, astounding discovery. And uh, again, I, I can't remember the details of it, but I, it had it had something to, it was some anomaly that he had seen that, you know, you, you should not be able to see. And he discovered about 10 minutes before his presentation that he had made an elementary math error, that he had made the assumption that the orbit he was looking at was a circle rather than an ellipse. Well, you know, that's something that you learn in Astronomy 101. And what he did was he went out there on stage and he presented the result that he had found and then said, but I was mistaken because here's the error that I made. And he was applauded. They brought the house down because it was a very honest and forthright thing that he did. He was going to get caught anyway, so why not catch himself? Why not use that same scrutiny on his own ideas and not just on others? That's a great demonstration, I think, of the scientific attitude. And it's it's precisely what science deniers and pseudoscientists don't do. They look for any excuse for their theory not to be refuted by evidence. They will cherry pick, they'll come up with a conspiracy theory, they'll engage in whatever sort of illogic they have to, to protect their theory from being refuted, rather than participating in the idea that it needs to be tested. You've put yourself in the same hotel with the Flat Earth Society, but you've also, as part of your research, you've looked into people who ignore the science on vaccines or GMOs. You know, how can people make that distinction between healthy or maybe slightly overzealous skepticism and outright denial? It's important to remember that deniers, sometimes they're denying to themselves, right? They're, they're not, it's not just that they're liars. It's not that they know the truth and they're pretending that it's 
not true because they've got some corporate interest or some financial interest. I mean, that does happen, say, in cases with uh, climate change or the denial of whether cigarettes cause cancer. There was some corporate money and ideology behind both of those. But with the, the flat earth example is, uh, I think, a better one for this purpose. No, nobody's making any money on, on that. And so you might wonder what that's about. One of my favorite stories here is that when I went to the Flat Earth Convention, a Flat Earth International Conference in 2018, I flew out to Denver and I spent 48 hours with uh, 600 flat earthers. And I went to their seminars and listened to what they had to say. And they claim that their beliefs are based on evidence, not faith, but evidence. And so I took them seriously and asked, if your belief is actually based on evidence, what evidence would it take to convince you that you were wrong? Well, this is a very difficult question for them to answer because the real answer is no evidence could convince them that they're wrong. I took one of the guys who was given a presentation up on the main stage out to dinner, and we had a two-hour dinner, my treat, in which we talked about this. And, and I asked him this question, this Karl Popper, this hard question from philosophy of science, what evidence would it take to prove you wrong? And he really couldn't think of anything. And as I offered you know, various things, he would shoot them down for strange reasons. And so my, my favorite was when I said, well, look, you guys believe that the Earth is flat, which means that Antarctica is not a continent, but a mountain range spread out along the circumference of the Earth, uh, which is keeping the water from falling off, which means that you believe that Antarctica is not a thousand mile wide continent. It's a more like 23, 24,000 mile long ice wall. So why don't we try to fly over it? And why don't we you know, get a plane ticket and fly from South America to New Zealand or Australia and, and see? And he said, well, those flights don't exist. At which point I pulled out of my back pocket the itinerary for that very flight. And he said, well, have you been on that flight? And I said, well, no, but neither of you. So let's go. I'll pay for it. And he got started to get very nervous. And we talked about it. And I said, would you be willing to go on the flight? And he finally said, yes, he would. And I thought, great, you know, let, if we're going to do it, I'm going to crowdfund for the tickets. And, you know, this will be quite the spectacle because he's going to have to admit that he was wrong. Then I started to get nervous because I realized that we needed a criteria. I didn't just want him looking out the window and saying, well, you know, no, that we just flew around the edge. We, we needed something to measure. And so I said, why doesn't our criteria be something like whether or not we have to refuel the plane? Because if you're right, there's no way we could make it on one tank of gas. But if I'm right, we wouldn't have to stop to refuel. And there aren't any places to stop in Antarctica to refuel anyway. And he agreed. And we shook hands. And I was very excited. And then about 20 seconds later, he took it back. And I asked him why. And he said, because he thought that the entire history of air travel might be a hoax, that planes didn't actually need to stop to refuel. And I said, listen, you know, let me just be clear. You're saying that the entire history of air travel since before you and I were born has been a sham and a hoax against the day when you and I might be sitting here with nobody listening for me to try to convince you that the earth was round. And he said, yes. Now, that is corrupt reasoning. That is delusional reasoning. That, that is a type of reasoning that a scientist would, would never engage in. If you think about it, there's a conspiracy theory right at the heart of that. And conspiracy theories are one of the main tropes behind all science denial. But that's just one example of the links that a science denier will go to to keep their theory from being refuted. That's not skepticism. That's denial. It's almost the opposite of skepticism. It's really kind of form of gullibility. 
it really is. And, and I'm glad you put it that way, because I've often thought that science deniers are actually quite gullible. They've got a double standard of evidence. Nothing but proof or certainty will convince them if it's something that they don't want to believe. And no evidence is really required to convince them if it's something that they do want to believe. So they're quite gullible when it comes to something that they care about and don't really require any evidence. And that's something that a scientist is really not supposed to do. Getting back to the scientific method we talked about before, I've been in a lot of discussions with educators, including science educators. And many times someone will get very scornful at the notion that the scientific method is the key to science. And if we could just teach students this method, they'll be able to think scientifically. I was a little confused by that thinking just because I think the scientific method is great, but maybe you could set me straight in the context of what you describe as a scientific attitude. It's a good question. I mean, I, I join the people who reject the idea of a scientific method. And it's not because I think that science is anarchic or that there are no methods that they follow. I mean, the classic five-step method that we were all taught in school is observe, form a hypothesis, make a prediction test, and then revise your hypothesis based on what you find. And scientists certainly do all of those things. It's just that the way that it's taught in school as a five-step method, as, a, as I said, is a kind of a recipe. That's just not how science works. Science is not this linear process by which you can just follow the steps and, and you get truth at the other end. And so the way that I think that science should actually be taught, starting at a very young age, not just in college when you get to philosophy of science, but I mean at a young age, is to teach people how to think like a scientist. And, and I know that's what they're trying to do with scientific method, but I remember my own education in science and it was really science appreciation. We were really made to feel that weren't we lucky to have been born into the era in which all truth had already been discovered. And what we were going to do was study the results of science, the findings of science that all these brilliant people had found. I, I think I would have learned a lot more about science if I had been trained to try to think like a scientist, to learn how to grapple with uncertainty, to understand how much error there is in trying to test something. How many times in performing a scientific experiment, it, you just, you really don't know what you're doing and you're flying a little blind and that's why you need the testing. So the observing, the testing, the predicting, like I said, those are all parts of it, but that's really a rational reconstruction after the fact to try to justify what scientists do. It's not how science is actually done. And so the way that I would like to see them teach science is to ask a question and then let students begin to gather some data and see how they can test their own hypotheses. Uh, I remember in chem lab one time, we had something called the unknowns lab, where we had seven different substances and we had to perform tests to see which was which. That was terrific. I still remember that lab because we had to think of our own tests to try to learn what was what. That we learned a lot because we were thinking like a scientist. Well, it's interesting because the, the latest academic standards for science, things like the next generation science standards, they tend to focus on students constructing their own understanding through experience and experimentation. You know, is, is there anything a philosopher of science has to say about why that might be a good thing? Or maybe is there something potentially missing from that approach? 
It depends on what you mean by their own experience or experimentation. Sometimes when people say experiment or experimentation, they mean a sort of a random searching around for things. And I mean, that, that does happen in, you know, kind of a wandering aspect to learning sometimes. But I think that what's important is to remember that with science, what we're trying to do is to learn from experience. And you're only learning from experience if you're being methodical about it, if you're keeping track, if you're not just you know, randomly, blindly doing things. Think of it this way. Francis Bacon was really the person who came up with the idea, okay, we're already learning from nature. Let's just stop doing it by accident. Let's try to be a little more organized about this. And I think that that's okay. So, I mean, students should be encouraged to construct their own understanding, I think is the way that you put it. But it has to be done in a rigorous way. It can't just be constructed out of nothing or based on how they feel about it. There has to be a humility that the data are trying to tell you something. And you're only going to learn it if you're paying attention and you're being methodical and rigorous about how you're going to learn from it. So just thinking of fields outside of the hard sciences, particularly the social sciences, where you've written a lot about, how rigorous would you say they are with regard to the scientific attitude? Well, n not very, and that's the problem. Uh, I actually started my career uh, as a philosopher of social science, and I was writing about the idea that the so social sciences needed to be more rigorous. And I spent a lot of years thinking that really what they needed to do was to emulate scientific method. And I finally came to the conclusion that what they really needed to emulate was scientific attitude. I think that a lot of social science is quite ideological. If you look at social science research, they you'll often find that say you wanted to test whether uh, immigrants pay their own way in the economy. Well, research out of certain think tanks show that they do. Research out of other think tanks show that they don't. How can that happen? We wouldn't put up with that kind of a skew in physics. But it happens all the time in social science because I think that people often start with what they hope to be true, what they want to be true, and then they cherry pick uh, evidence which uh, supports their hypothesis. I do have a chapter in my book, The Scientific Attitude, where I talk about the social sciences and I talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses. I think that it is entirely possible to do good work in the social sciences. And I give some examples in the book of good, rigorous social science that follows the scientific attitude. But I also give some examples of what I think is very poorly done social science, where they're not doing that. So I, I have a soft spot for the social sciences and I don't want to make the claim that what they're doing is fraudulent or done in bad faith. It's, it's just that a lot of the practitioners in social science embrace the idea that they're not really scientists and they don't want to be. At which point I wonder, then what are you? You know, do you think that there are empirical truths about human experience and you're trying to be rigorous and maybe even do some experiments and some testing to figure out what those are? And if not, I'm really not sure what they're doing. If they want to be social scientists, I think that they need to be prepared for the idea their hypotheses could be wrong and that those are going to be revealed through rigorous experimentation. Circling back to education, in addition to your writing, you also teach a class at Harvard Extension School on ethics. Just curious, given where we are right now in the COVID cycle, do you expect you'll be teaching that class live or online this fall? 
I don't know. I've been in touch with Harvard Extension, and I do teach a, a, an ethics course. Uh, I've always taught it in person uh, once a year. Uh, I was slated to teach it this spring and couldn't do it because I was on medical leave. And then I just thought it would automatically go off into the fall and become an online course. But I'm not sure that that's going to happen. Uh, I'm not sure that the demand is there so much for the uh, for the online courses. And I'm waiting to hear back. I love teaching that course. And so I hope I get to do it. But it's not clear to me when the next opportunity will be. I've never taught an online course before. So it's going to be a real challenge to turn that uh, into an online course. The thing that I love the most about teaching philosophy is the personal engagement, the interaction. I, I like being with the students and just running it as a big seminar where we're, you know, we're all doing philosophy together. And I'm hoping if I do the course online, that there's a way not to lose that. But I'm, I'm not great at tech. And I, I hope that uh, I can figure out a way to make that to make that happen. Right. We'll see if we can get the whole course to work off of WordPerfect. Yeah, we've known one another a long time, so you know what a what a technophobe I am. I'll be calling on you. I'll be in your corner. Closing up, lead. Care to tell listeners about uh, your next project? Yeah. So after going to the Flat Earth Convention, I got inspired to write a new book called How to Talk to a Science Denier. I'm convinced that we do not convince people to give up their beliefs based on facts and evidence. Uh, we do it based on trust on personal relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that facts and evidence don't have a role, but it means that by themselves, they're not going to be persuasive. And what we need to do is to talk to one another more. And so in addition to doing the Flat Earth Convention, I've taken some other uh, trips and uh, talked to coal miners about climate change and done some other things and a few that I've got coming up, which of course I'm now going to have to do by Zoom. But I'm interested in this idea of personal interaction and how that helps us to help people to change beliefs. I get a lot out of it. I enjoy that. Trying to convince somebody online uh, in the comment section of an article, just where we're arguing with one another across the partisan divide where we're all polarized and angry. I just think that really doesn't work for political beliefs or empirical beliefs. And I think it's why things like climate change have gotten us where they are. That's become such a partisan issue. And that's the one I'm really worried about. I mean, flat earth, maybe they're not hurting anybody, but climate change is. And I'm just flummoxed by the idea that we're not convincing one another with arguments. More people, I think, are now believing in anthropogenic climate change but that's as the evidence is coming in and they're paying the price for it. If we wait too long, it's too, it'll be too late. It may be too late already. It's really almost too late right now. So I'm trying to figure out how we can persuade people on these really important science denial topics to change their mind before it's too late for all of us. That includes anti-vax, it includes climate change, it includes evolution, it includes flat earth, GMOs, a number of different topics that I'm going to be covering in my new book. Well, I wish you luck with your mission. You got your work cut out for you. I do. Thanks very much. And thank you for having me on your show. Oh, it's great. It's always good to talk to you. That was Lee McIntyre, author of, among many other things, The Scientific Attitude from MIT Press. And before we call an end to this first new podcast on new books in education, I'd like to use the occasion of talking with a philosopher to give a shout out to the inclusion of philosophy, or at least philosophical principles at all levels of education. In addition to his other books, Lee has written a book about post-truth for the MIT Press Essential series. And he and I like to talk about a book I just wrote for that same series, one on critical thinking, 
as the cure for post-truth, fake news, and many other social ills staring us in the face. While the two are not synonymous, critical thinking owes enormous debt to philosophy, from which it draws rules of logic, methods of persuasion, or avoiding being hoodwinked, and the philosophical attitude that can be traced back to Socrates that says we should measure our wisdom based on how much we can acknowledge what we don't know. But critical thinking also draws on more modern fields, such as science, psychology, and learning and cognitive sciences, which take into account that human beings are not robots or Vulcans, but complex organisms whose thinking is impacted by emotion, instinct, and biases wired into our brains, not just our ability to reason. One researcher proposed that while philosophy and science shows how to reason properly, Feels like psychology and cognitive science explain how complex human beings actually reason based on a range of factors that cannot be boiled down to algorithms. The bridge between how we reason absent discipline and reasoning in ways that could solve our problems rather than exacerbate them is called critical thinking. In addition to other topics, I hope we'll be able to discuss how to do this with upcoming guests here on New Books in Education. My name is Jonathan Haber, and you can read more about the subjects covered in this podcast at degreeoffreedom.org. Thanks for joining me.